Most of the misunderstandings regarding the nature of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians have much to do with uh, the basic promise of throughout the entire Old Testament what the Holy Spirit is doing in the midst of God's people, regardless of whether it is uh, regardless of whether it is in the nation of Israel or it is before Israel or even afterwards. Uh, what the Holy Spirit does is a unified whole. Uh, he is always the giver of life in every single situation in which he uh, resides. And so we, we understand that whether it is him uh, inspiring those who built the tabernacle to have uh, completely different abilities in order to bring that about, or whether it is uh, him at creation hovering over the uh, waters and bringing life out of what was not life-giving. Um, all of this goes to the background of the Christian concept of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world. The Holy Spirit, for the church, is as involved in the temple of God as he ever has been, and as involved in what he is intending for it in uh, the skilled workmanship, in the building of it, and everything else. So those types of motifs, those type of pictures come straight into 1 Corinthians uh, and you can see the identity of that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Obviously, we had been through chapter 2 last week and talked at length about the reality that there are those things that mankind can do in his wisdom, and then there are those things that the Spirit does in his wisdom. And putting those things at odds with one another, the natural person, the spiritual person, all these things. So for the church, though, we have this identity that is called the temple of God the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and it is introduced to us with great fervor here in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you, speaking to the whole church, this is one of the uh, things that I always say, we have a great weakness in English. We don't have a plural for you, um, depending on where you live in the country, some do. But up here in the Northeast, we don't. And so we have to always make clarity on this. And in fact, some of your Bibles might even have a footnote because it's so important this is not an individualistic statement. It is a communal statement. Don't you know, I'll say it in the vernacular where I grew up, that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in all of you. The, the focus is not on the spirit of God dwelling in each of us. The focus is that the spirit of God dwells among the people of God. The same thing with the temple. The temple had multiple pieces, multiple parts, and sure, in some ways, uh, in quick speak, you could refer to the fact that the Holy Spirit was in each and every part. But that's not the goal. That's not the focus. The focus is that God's temple in the world is filled with his Spirit. That's always been the case. Everywhere that there was a temple, the Spirit of God dwelt that temple. If God was working in it, you could be assured that the Spirit of God was in the midst of it. Anyone want to guess what the first temple was in the world? The first place where God dwelt with man, where heaven and earth crossed over? Garden of Eden, very good. Garden of Eden could very well be seen as a temple in the world. In fact, it functioned exactly as a temple does. Uh, by the way, when we walk through the design of the tabernacle and even of Solomon's temple, there's reasons why there's decorations of trees and animals and cherubim guarding the way and all sorts of other stuff. That kind of stuff was meant to call everyone's mind straight back to Eden, a place where heaven and earth crossed over. And so when the temples were designed and they were filled, if heaven and earth cross over, excuse me, since heaven and earth cross over at that point, then we should expect that the Spirit of God would be present in it. This is one of the greatest teachings about the nature of the church in the New Testament. The church, the gathered people of God, is where heaven and earth touch. It's no longer a building. It's no longer a place of locality. It's no longer geographically bound. Now, it is the same as when Christ in his incarnation, he was the place where heaven and earth crossed. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. It is why he is our head. All of these pictures. That's why he walks up to Herod's temple that took 53 years to build and says, uh, tear this temple down in three days. I'll build it up again. And everyone's like, it took 53 years to build this temple. Are you going to build it in three days? And then the gospel writer makes a little parenthetical note and says they didn't realize he was talking about his body. That is the place where heaven and earth touched. Why? God and man come together. The heavens are the Lord's, the earth he has given to the children of man. 
And so when heaven and earth cross over, you can expect that the Spirit of God is present and mankind in some way is also present. In the Lord Christ, both. In the church, both. And this is what the apostles are going to start introducing us to this reality. Not only is the Spirit giving us ability, but we are truly the temple of God now. We should not expect that it should be on that mountain or that mountain that God's temple will be, but those who worship the Lord will worship him wherever they are in spirit and in truth. Right? This is exactly what Jesus promised to the woman in Samaria. Yes, ma'am. Correct. Uh, doesn't that a little bit contradict? I mean, in other words, it's saying more than one. Right. So, uh, so let me clarify a couple of things on that. One, that's in Matthew 18. That is a reference to the rulership of Christ. Christ is speaking there, saying where two or three are gathered. And there he is actually speaking in the context of church discipline, uh, of carrying out his teaching and his judgments inside the assembly. And he says, when we gather together for the purposes of upholding his teachings, he is there present with us. This is actually what my dissertation is on, Emmanuel, uh, on that exact thing, the authority of his words in the community. So um, that is about Christ, specifically his presence as Emmanuel in the presence of the church throughout all ages, never abandoning them. The Holy Spirit's indwelling of the temple is a whole nother level of things. In fact, Jesus says, it is so much better for all of you that I go to heaven so that the Spirit can come. He says, there, there is such a value to being the temple of the Holy Spirit. There is such a value to having what is in Greek called the paraclete, uh, the, the comforter, the one who comes alongside of us with strength. That one is designed for the filling of the temple of God. Jesus, in his incarnation, was only here. That was a brand new thing for the temple of God. Before that, it had been built of stones. Before that, it had been built of skins and sticks. Before that, it had been built of dirt and trees. Now, it's once again mobile in the world and continuing into all the nations of the world. But it is not the temple of Jesus Christ, as it's described in Scripture. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this is not, this is not just a, a testimony of where two or three are gathered. I know that that verse is taken out of context all the time to just refer to, well, I don't have to go to church. I can just hang out with my buddies that are Christians and that's all fine. No, I'm just saying people make it refer to the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, if I'm just out with two or one other Christian, I am the church. No, you're not. No, you're not. The church has leadership. The church has accountability. The church has sacraments. The church has uh, um, church discipline. The church has functions. It has offices. It has purposes. How many of us, when we hang out with our friends, are carrying out church discipline and, and communion and baptisms and the life of things and seeing people that are different than us that we have to get along with under the umbrella of the grace of Christ? Correct. So, <laughs> well, I know some friends. So, the expression of this reality that that Paul is going to say to the church in Corinth is he's introducing this Greek church to a very Jewish concept, the temple of God. Now, in the Greek mind, the temple was where God is served. It's completely and thoroughly removed from your life as far as home life is concerned. You can go to the temple, you can do all this kind of stuff, sleep with temple prostitutes, and that does not count for infidelity for your marriage. There was such a separation between these two things in Greek society, especially in Corinth. And so when, when Paul is dragging that concept of the temple directly into their lives and saying, you, church in Corinth, you are the temple. You don't go to temple. You are the temple. Which means what is conducted in the midst of all of you matters, not only in earth, but also in heaven, because the temple is where heaven and earth cross and so what he is explaining to them is not only does that speak to us of the value, because he says in the very next verse, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He introduces this concept to them because there was such a disconnect in the Corinthian mind of what is done in the body doesn't matter. Only, only the spiritual experiences matter. That was more the pagan milieu of what was going on in Corinth. 
And what was happening instead in the church was that kind of concept was coming straight into the mindset. That's my phone in the other room. I apologize. Someone should have silenced that. It's a nice phone call, though. Nice ring. God calling. They were so proud of this reality. They were so proud of this way that they looked at life that they actually prided themselves on not condemning sexual immorality in the church. It's what the next several chapters of the book of Corinthians are all about. We're not going to delve into that today because it's, it's not the main focus of why we're here in 1 Corinthians. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for instance, addresses this reality that there are, there are tolerations of immorality that are on a level that Paul says even among the pagans isn't even mentioned. And you're priding yourself, smiling about this reality that you love the grace of God so much that you don't even tell people about sin anymore. He was like, you shouldn't be smiling. You should be in tears. You, you guys are proud of the fact that there's a man in your church that is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are all priding yourself on how tolerant you all are. Sound familiar? But he says, no. What happens in the midst of the church has not just earth consequences, it has heavenly consequences. It has consequences that are beyond any normal human interaction. In fact, not only should we care about it as much as the pagans do, we should care about it even more, especially when it comes into the church. And that goes for every sin. We cannot abide pride. We cannot abide slander. We cannot abide mistreatment of people, abuses of any type. Why? Because we have a responsibility to the temple of God. And I find that a lot of people will take some of the references to our body as the temple of the Holy Spirit and refer to it only as the individual. We find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 next. This idea that uh, only my individual actions only affect me. And so we will take references like your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, apply it only to the individual and say, see, you can't eat McDonald's every day. So you can't drink or smoke or anything like this because it's, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Completely leaving the fact that every one of those is, is in the plural. Y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you can't sleep with a prostitute. He takes the communal aspect of it and says the individual is not excused in doing whatever they please. The communal aspect of this is that together we have a responsibility of identity as the temple of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see it. He establishes this back in verse 9, chapter 6. Do you not know? And he's just giving them the basics of the background of the gospel. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, can you imagine something more more inconsistent with the Christian concept of life than being proud of how unrighteous people are. He says the exact opposite. So let's go back to the basics, he says, verse, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I'm sorry, uh, chapter 6, verse 9. And he says, so let me, um, let me just give you a basic list uh, that was quite specific and pertinent to the church in Corinth. Don't be deceived. Not the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice sexual, homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he looks at the church and he says, such were some of you. You used to be in all of that. And now you're bringing it into the church and being proud about its presence. But that is a former identity. That's who you once were. That can't be who you are now. You cannot be walking around going, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm a drunk Christian. That's just what I'm going to be now. And good thing for the grace of God, I can just drink every single thing I ever want, and there's no consequence, no effect, it only affects me. Anyone who's dealt with drunkenness knows that's not true. Yes, ma'am. Does because we have infinite grace mean we should sin even more? No! Yeah, no. And, and, and just be... No! Right, exactly. Right. 
the, the law comes in and it causes sin to abound. You're quoting Romans 3 there. And, and he's saying, does that give us excuse? No, of course not. Of course not. In fact, some slanderously charge us in our preaching of the grace of Christ to say that. And he says, they're just, their judgment, what does he say? Their judgment is just. Because none of us are saying that. None of, none of the apostles ever preached that the grace of God was giving us license to sin. He says, those who are defined by, by these things, those, nobody would ever come up and say, you know what I am? I'm a Christian, but I'm a thieving Christian. I'm the type of Christian that steals things all the time. A klepto saint. That's what I am. I'm always going to be that. I'm a greedy Christian. I'm going to lean into this as an identity. I will only look at other people to find what I want out of life. I want what they have. I'm a covetous Christian. He's saying what you're doing is you are defining yourself by unrighteousness. But unrighteous does not inherit the kingdom of God. Only those who are in Christ. You can't be an idolatrous Christian. Well, I... I live in 21st century America. I don't have idols. Yes, sir? The point I like is you don't have idols. What about your car? Right. Your job. Materials. House. Money. Your ice breaker. <laughs> Comforts. Your ice breaker broke. She goes, I think we have an idol. <laughs> your little crush that our ice maker was broken. Right. So what is Paul saying here? He says, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, you cannot have two sides of your life. You do not go to the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You do not go to the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are that temple. And so what we do in the body matters. We can never separate out action from identity. And we can never separate out identity from action. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are Christians. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you go back and say, all of this unrighteousness doesn't affect my identity? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. You say, well, oh, so in doing these sins, I can lose my salvation? No. What does it do? If a Christian is to look at this list of sins and say, yes, yes, I'm going to be an idolatrous Christian from now on. Or if they're going to look at this list and say, I'm going to be a greedy Christian from now on, or a drunken Christian from now on, or adulterous. Does that take away their salvation? No, salvation is not in our hands. But it may well show that this person has never been the temple of the Holy Spirit at all. And so what Paul is reminding them of, these are not small things. There is a reality about the preaching of the word of the kingdom. And Jesus talks about this in one of his most well-known parables, the parable of the sower and the soils. Remember this? The word of God is sowed into the world and it falls among four different types of soils. And you know, when I was in Sunday school, one um, Sunday school teacher taught me about this. There was the first soil, which was the rocky soil, which someone's not affected by the word of God at all. And so they say, this is unbelievers. And then they say, well, there's these three other types of soils. Those, uh, those seeds that fell among the rocky soil, those that fell among the thorny soil, and those that fell among the good soil. And they said, these are all different Christians. This one right here, they get all sorts of excited. This is the ones that fell among the rocky uh, soil. Get all sorts of excited, and then they, they follow the word for a time, and then they depart and leave, and then they lose their salvation. This is how I was taught. And then those seeds that fell among the thorny soil, they, they, they stay with the word of God longer. And then the cares and the concerns of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, these types of things, it takes away their salvation and then they just go off into the world. They lose their salvation too. And then the seed that fell among good soil, these are true Christians that stay Christians their whole life. Incorrect. Incorrect. The point of that parable was to show either you have good soil that the word of God fell into and it brought about salvation, 
different harvests, 30, 60, 100 fold. Or the word of God in all of its mystical ability brought about certain responses in your life that comported and looked a lot like salvation to the naked eye, but proved to be unfruitful. And that was Jesus' entire point. The point is the fruit. If you plant uh, corn in the ground, what do you expect to pop up? You want just the blade of grass that comes, just the shoot? has to be the whole crop, doesn't it? Bearing fruit with patience, Jesus says, takes time. And if you plant the seed in, say, April or May, I always forget that we live so cold of a climate up here, you got to plant in like June. If you plant the seed in all of these soils, say one of them is just absolutely poisonous, the day after you plant the seed, they all look the same, don't they? Second day, they still all kind of look the same. Thorns, rocky soil. The only one that might be different is the one that cast on the path and the birds came and ate it. That's pretty much gone instantaneously. But whether it's good soil or rocky soil or thorny soil, it kind of all looks the same for the first week or so, doesn't it? Even if maybe after two weeks. But soon enough, the rocky soil will not be able to grow anything of real value because while the seed is good and capable of amazing things, even in the unregenerate heart, it can teach them about the way to do business better. It can teach them about how to live better, about how to have a happier family. And there are many, many, many churches that preach this way so that they can entertain unbelievers in their ranks. We'll just teach you how to have a better life, do business better, and, and add Jesus to your life. That doesn't work. It never works. It works for time. And that's exactly what Jesus was expressing there. But eventually, that kind of a soil is not sufficient for the word of God to bring about fruit. And so what happens is the stuff in rocky soil, what happens? It, it, it withers and dies. There's, there's nothing to really take root there. There's nothing of value there. No fruit comes of it. No, no results of the word of God bringing heaven and earth together in that person. And I'm not talking about good works. Good works is one piece of that. I'm talking about all the Christian virtues. Everything that the Holy Spirit brings when he indwells the life of a Christian. Love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yes, ma'am. Sure. For a time and then stops and then whatever sure and, and and it's not even just about going to church it's just about whether or not the fruit of christ is born out of them whether or not there is anything of the holy spirit coming out of them there's so many people that claim to be christians and then their their life their mind their habits and everything do not match that and the question goes back to them you claim to be a christian why don't you look like it why don't you act like it? Why, why is none of this even part of who you are? If, if someone is to come up to me and say, hey, you know who I am? I am an adulterous person. This is my identity. It's what I'll always be. But this person never sleeps around. Do I believe them? Words are cheap. Talk is cheap. If that never happens, that's just not an accurate identity. The same thing goes on the other side. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. So you know, no problem, no problem. Everything's great. But then you don't think like a Christian, you don't look like a Christian, you don't act like a Christian, and you have all these other things that call you to, this is who I am, this is who I am, and, and what Paul is saying is, none of this is consistent with being a Christian. I mean, look at this list, he leaves none of this stuff out, and all of this was rightly held in, in their culture as valuable things. Look at this list, verses 9, 10, and 11, right? We'll read it again. Don't be deceived on this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor those who are idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These things are not compatible with calling yourselves Christians. And he spends so much ink on expressing this reality because they were priding themselves on how open-minded they were. 
And he says, instead of pride, you should be crying about this. That you would allow people to destroy themselves without being warned. And he says, look, don't you even remember? And here he speaks to the Christians in the church. You once were all of this. Past tense, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and, here's why we're here, by the Spirit of our God. The Spirit of God does not abide this type of stuff to hang around and the church to be proud about it. Why? Because we know it destroys people. We know it destroys the image of God. And so the answer comes back, I don't know if your translation will have this, but in verse 12, uh, all things are lawful for me is in quotation marks in some translations. Uh, do you have that in yours? You should. Um, because, uh, while it is a translational uh, theory, it's basically the theory is that Paul is taking things that the Corinthian church is saying to him and answering back to them. But all things are lawful for me. Right? That same thing. We're, we're under grace, not under the law. We can do whatever we want and God will forgive us. Right? And so he does this. He says, all things are lawful for me. Yes, but not all things are helpful. But all things are lawful for me. He says, yes, but I will not be dominated by anything. And here, I will throw in even the good stuff. Food. Food is good, yes? Food is good is meant to be received with thanksgiving to God who gifted it, who made it so that the world is not built on a gray sludge that you eat that tastes like nothing. Food is wonderful. It's filled with curiosities and creativity, all this kind of stuff. But even something good can be used for evil, can't it? If it dominates you, dominates your thinking and everything that you do and every decision that you make, and there are some people who are given to this, defining themselves by something far beyond this. Instead of receiving food with thanksgiving, food is what they live for. And it becomes a vice to them. Same thing for alcohol. Wine was created by God to be a tremendous gift, a blessing even. And yet how many are given to using something good to something bad? It happens with everything. Such is the nature of sinfulness. And he uses the example of, of one thing that God created to be meant for the specific purposes of it that people twist to their own demise. What does he say? Verse 13, he uses the example of food. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. Right? And, and there were those who were arguing that gluttony is perfectly fine. We can just eat everything everywhere all the time and have no holdbacks on anything. And he says, yeah, but God destroys both food and the stomach in hell. And he's using this back on them and saying, you are trying to define yourself by transient earthly things. And yet you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You cannot live like you used to live. Not because it's just wrong, but because it is not consistent with who you actually are. You're not just material things. That's where our culture is sitting. We're just physical beings. And everyone knows that's not the case. We know we have consciousness. We know we have a conscience. We know we have a moral code. We know we have a soul. What does it say, verse 13, right? God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant for sexual immorality, but uh, is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Here he's drawing them out of their worldview, which the body says, I want this. And, God, and the Lord says, I made the body. I didn't make it for you to use it any which way you want. I made it for my glory. What does he say? Same thing here. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. You cannot look at the temple and service to the Lord as removed from your body. It doesn't. It invades every part of who you are. As a Christian, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, you cannot simply say, I can do whatever I want, and that will not affect my spiritual status. Yes, it will. 
Yes, it will. He says, how could you not know this? Verse 14, God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. If the body doesn't matter, then why are we going to be resurrected? If the body doesn't matter, why was Christ risen from the dead bodily? Why does he to this day have a human body glorified in heaven? If the body doesn't matter, then nothing matters. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies, all this is plural, are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Why is he saying this? Because this was actually the practice in Corinth. There was a temple with temple prostitutes, and people looked at this and said, I can go and visit the temple prostitutes and come back, and it has no effect on my marriage whatsoever. And Paul says that's lunacy. Not only is that absolute lunacy, on the other side, to think that that doesn't affect the gathered assembly of the church, they had a man inside the church in chapter 5 that was sleeping with his stepmother. And all the rulers in the church were just like, see how open-minded we are? We're not even condemning this. <laughs> he can sit in the front row. And Paul says, kick him out. And you all need to be in tears for your absolute and utter failures in this. How can you not know, verse 15, you, do you not know your bodies all of our bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute, join them together? No. Verse 16. Do you not know? I mean, he keeps on coming back to, this is really basic stuff. The unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Your bodies were not made pointless. God did not raise Christ for no purpose whatsoever. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know any of this? I mean, it's like going back to first grade. Don't, well, I don't know what kind of first grade classes teaching this stuff. Don't sleep with prostitutes. But it's going back to ethics 101. This will destroy every relationship in your life. And he takes them back even to the creation. Of course it did. Uh, they did have some forms of divorce, yes, but it was not it was not common, no. And so what it led to was not something like that on the surface, but all sorts of discontent and hatred between men and women on multiple levels. And it was not just men going to the temples, but yes. There were there was all manner of things going on in Greek society, and the the costs of that uh, were the loss of their empire. Rome was in charge of Corinth now. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We'll talk about that a bit today. Do you not know, verse, six, uh, verse 16, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two, and he goes all the way back to the creation of the world. God made bodies for a specific purpose. Do you not know this? As it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee then from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Thinking that that doesn't affect the gathered assembly of the church is stupid. There, I'll just put it all together in one little bundle. It was like, or... Do you further not know that your body, y'all's body, the church's body, with all of its individual bodies, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within us, within y'all, whom you have from God? Y'all are not your own. If there is ever a more important thing to say to the church these days, it would be that. We are not Christians for ourselves. You do not get to do whatever you want and think it doesn't affect others. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work in a family. It doesn't work in a church. It doesn't work in the temple of the Holy Spirit. By the way, it doesn't even work in society. 
Everyone's life affects everyone else's life. If somebody's driving like a maniac on the road, does that affect your life or does it just affect them? Yeah, it's going to affect all of us. They keep doing it. He says, why are we not our own? Well, that seems a little possessive of God, doesn't it? He says, you're not your own because you're bought with a price. Therefore, the command comes, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in the church. Glorify God in what you do with your body. Glorify God in all of these ways. He says, why? Because it's part of belonging to Christ and having the Spirit of God. He will go into multiple chapters on all sorts of interactions that this has with life, whether from marriage or from food offered to idols, or the eating of food offered to idols, the setting aside of our own mores, our own preferences for the benefit of somebody else. If, for instance, I'm okay with, oh, uh, if I'm okay with eating, can you please interact? Thank you. If I'm okay with eating steak, but I have a brother or sister that I have coming over for dinner, and I know them to be vegetarian, do you think I'm prepping steak for me and for them and saying, stop being a big baby? No, if, if their conscience is weak and they can only eat vegetables, okay. I'm, I'm going to find something with a lot of cheese in it probably because vegetables by themselves are pretty gross. But it's going to be pretty good. And that's going to be difficult. And I have to lay aside my own things. This is one of the things that Paul will say is, when it comes to these things, why, why, would, why would eating meat be more important than the conscience of my brother or sister in Christ? It's not. He says, so even if it came and he uses the most extreme example I can think of, I would even become a vegetarian, he says, if it kept my brother from stumbling. It's a really, really hard command. He says, all of these things, what do we do? We do it for the glory of God. Why? Because he is our owner. We do not talk in terms like this very often, but Christians were bought with a price. They are slaves of Christ and slaves of God. We do not get to uh, go somewhere else or do something else. There's a reason why we follow his rule. It's because he is our master. That is the terminology given, but we are also joint heirs with Christ. We are sons and daughters as well. There's all manner of pictures, but we like to avoid some of the pictures that we don't like. Uh, but Paul will say this straight out because it is required in order to understand how significant some of this stuff is. Go to chapter 12. That kind of covered those chapters in quick succession. Well, when we get to chapter 12, we see the effects of this. And this is where we're going to sit probably for a couple of weeks, uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14. Um, because the expression of how the Spirit of God interacts with the church so far has been really almost scattershot. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The, the interaction that the Spirit has had with the church has been surprising. Nobody has really sat down and said, here's the gifts that the Holy Spirit works in the church. Here's the things that he does amongst his people. All we knew is that when we came to the day of Pentecost, everyone was speaking new languages. Languages that people could hear in their mother tongue that were people from all over the world. That's not a natural ability. That is an evidence that heaven and earth are crossing over. There's no natural ability for this. Anyone ever seen that naturally happening? Where people just all of a sudden, I know Russian. Mm -hmm. That's talking in tongues. Yep. Yep. What's speaking in tongues? Literally, speaking in languages. That literally is the translation for it. It's, it's different tongues. Um, it's speaking in different languages. It's, it's undoing the Tower of Babel. We talked about that when we were there, right? Um, the whole point is that, yes, the, the world used to be in one language, and then there was multiple languages, so the people diversified over the world. Now that that's where they are, now that the temple of God is not just Israel and Mount Zion, now it's throughout the world, he gives us the ability to interact with all the nations of the world, hence the speaking in tongues. It was specifically meant to Proclaim, as it says in Acts chapter 2, the glories of God so that people could hear what had happened with Christ. Because this didn't just have ramifications for the people of Israel, it had ramifications for the world. Yes, ma'am. Could that be why you don't hear people talking in tongues that much? Because 
So there's a number of theories about this. Um, that would be one. Uh, another would be that it was part of the apostolic initial part. We already saw it dying away very quickly. Whether it died away or not is not something I'm going to make a call on. The scriptures don't say that. Um, it Kind of like the healings of the book of Acts, right? We're not talking about somebody getting over arthritis or a, a sore back. We are talking about somebody who was dead coming back to life. We're talking about someone who was paralyzed their whole life walking. We're talking about someone who was demon-possessed. No, I mean, th these are not trivial healings, nor was it trivial speaking in tongues as we see these days, um, which is a practice only about 130 years old. Um, so the actual ability to speak in another language was miraculous. Evidence of heaven and earth crossing over. This is not, this is not something that uh, this. So your question was, is it because we have learned to a certain point? I wouldn't say that because that practice, that gifting, at least as far as for a really obvious thing in the history of the church, went away very fast. We don't read of it happening in the second and third centuries. We don't read anyone trying to argue that that was still happening. And still there were, there were thousands of languages that people had never heard of and didn't know how to interact with. Um, so I wouldn't say that that would be the reason. I would say that for the announcement of this going out into the world, it happened on the front line. And that day on Pentecost, the front line was Jerusalem still, and then Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. So whether or not that exists on the fringes at the uttermost parts of the world where there's first contact made, I can't make the call on. I wouldn't be surprised if God still does that. Um, but I've never seen it legitimate. There's, there's kind of where I stand for that one. Uh, same thing with healings and dreams, by the way. They're meant for frontline, first-generation interactions. If God is still using those, for instance, when we stumble upon a tribe in the middle of Papua New Guinea that has never seen any other person before, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, and God has surprised us enough that we shouldn't be surprised that he would still use something like that. But as far as the normative life of the church, no. There's no biblical warrant for that whatsoever. In fact... There's biblical warrant for people shutting up at church. That's what chapter 14 is all about. Taking turns and being in order. Um, because the point is not what you have and what your abilities are. The point is the gathered assembly. That's what these three chapters are all about. I know everyone thinks 1 Corinthians 13 should be read at weddings and all this kind of stuff. That's fine. But the primary purpose of 1 Corinthians 13, that love chapter... It's all about the fellowship of the gathered assembly at church. That's its context. You ever wonder that? All the spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and all the ways in which to carry out the gathered assembly in an orderly fashion in chapter 14. Why is chapter 13 right there? He said, I could have the most magnificent gifts of all. He says, I could speak the language of angels. But if I don't have love for my brother, that defers to them first. I'm just making noise. If it's all about me and the focus on me, he says, even if I can prophesy and dream dreams and see visions and all this kind of stuff, but I don't have the chief of all Christian virtues, which is love one another, inside the gathered assembly, I'm worthless. Worthless. Everything I'm saying is worthless. Everything I'm doing is worthless. It is one of the main points of this. We'll get into that when we get there. But that's kind of the setting that Paul talks about this with. He says, okay, and this is how he switched topics inside 1 Corinthians. He says, okay, now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. Again, how many times has he said this? Do you not know this? Do you not know this? I don't want you to be uninformed. You should know this. You should know this. Now I want you to be informed. You know that when you were pagans... <laughs> I love the way he puts this. It's, there's no sugar on it whatsoever. You were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says that Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, beginning of 1 Corinthians 12.
Why is he bringing this up? What a bizarre way to start this conversation, right? There were concerns. When somebody was legitimately speaking in tongues, there in the assembly of the church in Corinth, the concern would have been held by other Christians, if there wasn't a current interpreter, maybe they're saying something wrong. We can't check what they're preaching. And so what Paul is saying is, don't worry about this, first of all, is that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. He is expressing this reality that if the Holy Spirit is truly working through people in ways you do not understand, take solace in the fact that the Spirit of God knows how to direct his own gospel. He knows how to direct the message of Christ accurately. Not all of us need the exact same gifts in order to carry this out. Instead, he says, this is actually not a bug, it is a feature of the church that we do not all have the same giftings. Verse 4, look at this. There are varieties of gifts, but there's the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. By the way, if you didn't catch on, uh, Spirit, Lord, and God is a Trinitarian reference if ever there was one. Um, pretty remarkable one at that. But we're not here for the lessons on the Trinity. I just want to mention in passing. Verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. That is the first point of why the Holy Spirit gives spiritual abilities to Christians. This includes not just these gifts. This includes anything that he does in our lives. My favorite list regarding what the Spirit does in our lives is not here in 1 Corinthians 12, and I know there's all sorts of remarkable stuff in here. My favorite list is found in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Because none of those is focused on the self. Except self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience. What, what good is patience without the sins of another or of self or of suffering in the midst of having to be around other people? Kindness. Who you can be kind to? Goodness. Who you can be good to? Gentleness. Who are you going to be gentle to? He even gives the example of it in the opening verses of Galatians 6. What the Holy Spirit does is not for the individual. That is perhaps one of the most important teachings regarding the nature of the Holy Spirit's work in the church. So many people look at what the Holy Spirit does and says, it's all about me. The Holy Spirit makes me feel this way. The Holy Spirit told me this. The Holy Spirit told None of that happened. The Holy Spirit is invested in the common good, and the Holy Spirit has spoken already in Scripture. So when people go, well, the Holy Spirit gave me this, or the Holy Spirit gave me that, the reality is that you can usually trace that out as to what they're truly focused on. And I'll guarantee you, most of the time, it is going to be based on how it makes them look better or more virtuous in the eyes of somebody else. The Holy Spirit does not give these things as a one-to-one -one like this. He does these things for the common good. For instance, if he gives... Let's see, what's the name of somebody that's not in this church? Let's say Bob. Let's say a guy named Bob walks into this church. He's a Christian. Just moved to Deposit or Windsor or Hancock or whatever. And he comes in and he's got a remarkable gift, uh, let's say, of patience. All right? Remarkable fruit of the spirit of patience just welling up from him. you're not going to find him talking about his patience all the time. You're not going to find him using it for his own good, patiently waiting until something happens so that he can take advantage of a situation. No, he will just be patient and it will be for the good of the Christians that surround him. This is how the Spirit works. It is not, it is not for Bob's sake that the Spirit of God gave him patience. Now, it does benefit him, 
but that's not the purpose. The same thing with the gifts. Why is each Christian given a manifestation of the Spirit? It is for the common good. And when he says common good, he's referring to the church, he's not referring to the nation. For to one is given, look, look at this list. I mean, this is an impressive list. For to one is given through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom. We'll come back to these. To another is the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. There's a lot of stuff to unwrap there. We're not going to sit here and try to pull apart the identification of each of these spiritual gifts. One, because some of them are debatable. Two, because some of them only have a single word said about them in all of Scripture, which makes the list not actually about the items of the list. It makes it about the purpose that sits behind the one who gave them. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list. This is not all the things that the Spirit of God does for the church. These are things that were happening in Corinth that were being contentious. Specifically, I would argue, ones that are easy to have the one who bears the gift puffed up in his own... Imagine if you could come and prophesy the future at church. Just just imagine it for just a second. You know what's going to happen in three years. There's going to be a famine. You know this because you happen to be in the first generation of the church where the Spirit of God was doing things like this. You know it with absolute certainty. Not because you made up your mind, but because the Spirit of God literally showed it to you. Yes, there were prophets in the early church. You trounced into church on Sunday morning. You got this message to deliver. Wouldn't you be tempted to pride? Nobody else knew about this, just me. And I can warn all these Christians to set aside some food, set aside some grain, have, have a plan, have some way to interact with it because the famine's coming. I'm kind of like Joseph, aren't I? I yeah, you know, when, when people are really thanking me, yeah, I, you're welcome. I saw to your needs and I, I helped you out. Do you see? Do you see the temptation towards pride? Right. Right. But these people did. They were going, you know what? It makes sense that the Holy Spirit gave me that tremendous gift. I'm a really great guy. I, uh, yeah. I look out for other people. I'm the exact person that he should be sending prophecies to. Well, what about another one? How about a gift of knowledge? Knowing things from afar that you have no business knowing. How about of, of teaching and in... in Languages that you never studied. If somebody comes in and they just teach in a language that they have studied, that's impressive enough. But especially to us who, you know, we're Americans, so we speak one language. Um, But this person who we've known their whole life, all of a sudden God gave them a whole language because there was a family visiting from Uzbekistan and boom, they come out with the specific variant of Russian that they hear in their eyes. If you were the person bearing that gift, wouldn't you be tempted a little bit to pride? I'm just like Peter on Pentecost. Of course God would choose me. And so what what Paul is doing is he's bringing them back down to earth and saying, this isn't about you. The whole point that Joseph was given that is so that God could save many people. And he himself says that in Genesis 50. In Acts 2, the whole reason why Peter was given the gifts of speaking and languages, which is really what we should call the gift of tongues, the gift of speaking and languages uh, unstudied by him was so that he could preach the glories of God. Not so that he could say, yes, yes, follow us, my personal piety and my personal ability carry these things out no in fact when peter and john went to the temple to pray and they came across the man who was lame and asked them for silver and gold what does peter answer back to him you know i mean if you were in sunday school you remember that song silver and gold have i none 
you know, such as I have given you in the name of Jesus Christ, not in the name of Peter, not in the name of John, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he rose up and walked. And everyone marveled. And they all came back and they're like, oh my goodness, look at these guys. Peter and John, these guys are great. And what does Peter answer? Why are you interacting with us like that? As if our own personal piety or devotion brought this about. Honor God. Honor God. We are all members of one body, one spirit. He gives to those members for his purposes to preach his gospel in the world that belongs to him. And he uses us, his people, to accomplish it. Shouldn't we just be grateful, honestly? Shouldn't we just be grateful regardless of what role we play in the body? And he says, verse 12, he says, just as the body, uses the analogy of our own body, is one and has many members, hands, feet, eyelids, all that kind of stuff. All the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. And he reasons it out. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all are made to drink of one spirit. If that doesn't eliminate pride, I don't know what will. Because he has just told them in chapter 1, there's not many smart and not many wise according to this world that the Lord chooses, yet he chose you. We're not the wise and smart ones. He says, there's one spirit. There's one body. God did not choose you because you're Jewish. He chose Greeks too. God didn't choose you because you were freemen. He chooses slaves too. God didn't choose you because you were smart. He chooses dumb people too. God doesn't choose you because you had this amazing capacity for the speaking in languages. He chose people that didn't speak in them too. Like the, the, the whole thing melts away every bit of pride that, should, that would naturally cling to us as bearing these tremendous gifts. He even instructs us to think of it this way in chapter 6 where he says, we have a marvelous gift inside jars of clay. We're just made of dirt and yet we have this tremendous stone in us. And we're sitting here going, yeah, it makes sense that God chose this dirty pot. And Paul's saying, no, it doesn't. We're not defined in our body by what we had in us and what intrinsic value there were, we are now defined by Christ. And this is why things done in the body matters is because the Holy Spirit did not save us just to bring us in some spiritual form to heaven when we die. No, we will be raised in our bodies to life eternal. The great question for an unbeliever is not, do you know where you will go when you die? It's what is your hope of life eternal? Is there anything that you trust in that can bring you through your sure in the future grave? No? There's one who went to the grave and came back from it that offered a tremendous promise to those who trust in him. And he's given an expiration date on that because there's a day on which God will judge the world and all will go to their grave. And all who think they have hidden from God because their existence is only relegated to this life between birth and their own grave, he says, God will rip you out of that grave and hold you accountable. That is a threat on a level that none can actually match. He says, you think you're going to escape with the injustices of your unbelieving heart, he says to the unbelievers who refuse to acknowledge God, he says, you think you're going to find solace in your graves? You won't. I'll take you from that too. And I'll make you stand on your feet before my judgment seat and address an answer for what you have done in the body. And so what Paul says here, and this is why, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, all about spiritual gifts, what's chapter 15 about? You hear it at every funeral, don't you? resurrection of the body because what is done in the body matters 
It matters for the church. It matters for our humility. It matters for who we are as Christians. And so the hope is not about where we go when we die. The hope is, do we die in Christ or not? Are we in Christ or are we in ourselves? Do we actually have that treasure in jars of clay or are we just a jar of clay? Mm. I really wish I could go on. I can't go on right now, though. All right, just, just more clarity on verses 12 and 13. Just as the body has one, uh, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And, and this should eliminate from us any sense of superiority in any sphere of human existence at all. It doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you were born, doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't even matter if you're a slave or a freeman, doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Greek, it doesn't matter if you have all the scriptures or none of the scriptures, it doesn't matter what your placement in the world is, what matters is, is the Spirit of God raising you to life again? Is the sacrifice of Christ justifying you? Is that what's going on? Nobody is in a better state simply because of how they were born. That, it, that, that sounds kind of normal to our hearing because we live in a culture that's been influenced by Christian thinking. This is brand new to the ears of the church in Corinth. You do not have layers in the church of value. Those are the super Christians. These are the normal Christians. Uh, we did it many times. That's the clergy. We're the laity. We do not have levels like that in the church. Not because we're all perfectly equal in our natural sense. No, no, no. We're unequal in our natural sense. But because in Christ, we have all been made one. If Christ does not do that, then we would be right to duke it out and find out who the strongest are. And have them rule. If Christ is not saving this world, even down to the smallest molecule, bringing it into reconciliation with him as king and lord of heaven and earth, then, yeah, eat, sleep, and be merry, because tomorrow you're probably going to die. But since Christ is risen from the dead, now our faith has actually interacted with the world in the fact that God has actually saved us through it and has given us of his grace so that we can sit in the pew next to a Jew or a Greek or a slave or a free man or male or female or any other things and lines that we draw as lines of demarcation amongst people. Whether they speak this language or that, whether they're from this country or that, whether they're of this color or that, it is irrelevant inside the kingdom of God because all have been made one in Christ. We have all drank from the same spirit. And Paul connects all of this back to the spirit of God who made heaven and earth. All the way back to the beginning. That spirit who in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 hovered over the waters and brought forth life from a dead water world. That is the spirit who made us one. Because every aspect of this is life-giving. Everything. The purpose why Christians are in each other's lives. Which if the Christians that are in your life are not life-giving, invest in better Christians. I don't know what to tell you. Help them. Ensure that they are worthy of your investment by bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. This is why church discipline is so important for the church. Because if we just let sin run rampant, it will destroy all of us. Yeah, I don't care how personally pious you can be in reading your Bible every day or whatever the case may be. If the place where God works on his people as a community is destroyed, what are the righteous to do? Do we just interact with the Christian world as if we are silos, just individuals? No. That is one part of our culture we can't have come into the church and think that way. We are all one body, and each of us are members. We have purposes. We have giftings. And I think this is one of the great things about this list, too, is that these giftings did not go by democratic vote. Well, you think that guy should have uh, the gift of healings. This guy should have the gift of prophecy. 
He said, no, the Spirit is in charge of all of this. He doesn't even say the apostles are. The apostles aren't. The pastors aren't. That's not our role. Our role is just to facilitate and edify the body so that the body works the way it should. It's not ours to go out and do all the work. We can't do that. But the reality is that as one body, all of us function in the way we ought. We're going to be back in this chapter at least for another week. Um, And then we're going to uh, pass through chapter 13 and connect that straight up to spiritual gifts inside the function of the church, which is what the love chapter is all about. Um, And then sit in chapter 14 for uh, quite a while, probably almost a month actually, because there is so much stuff uh, inside how the spirit works and the intricacies of the church's function that we really, nobody ever talks about. And yet it's so important to understand the Christian life as it has come to us. Um, I think a lot of people will look at these lists and go like, oh man, I don't have any of these gifts. I don't speak in languages I never heard. I don't, I don't prophesy about the future. Apparently the spirit of God thinks I'm worthless or, or pointless to the church. I just come here, I learn a bit, and then I don't know what to do or whatever. Don't let that pull you back out of this. Not only was this exceptional in the timeline, Corinth was exceptional in the apostolic age. The church in Ephesus wasn't even taught to this way at all because they didn't have these types of gifts, not in this way. The church in Galatia wasn't talked to in this way. They were actually talked to in a very, very harsh way. Um, they were called stupid and all sorts of things in there. <laughs> um, don't look at this and go, man, I really want what they have. I really wish, and there's so many people that look at this and go, we really just need to get back to the first century church. Have you read the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians and all of the crazy crud that came with this? Don't lose heart. This is awesome stuff. And when we get down into it, the reality of the Spirit's continual work in his church is more significant and more meaningful to the church than if Christ himself was physically with us. And Christ himself promised that. We'll come to that. We'll be back in 1 Corinthians 12 next week. Uh, Let's pray as we close out. Our Father, we're grateful for your word. We thank you that it continually uh, works on us. We pray, Father, that in the middle of all of these things, we don't lose heart, but instead we become bold for the gospel of Christ, not puffed up with our own reason in our own minds. Uh, Father, we, we do pray that the fruit of the Spirit would continually manifest itself in our midst, that what gifts you desire for us to have, we would be open to, and what direction you have us go, not only would we be open to, but we would happily walk it for the sake of the cross. We pray for all these things in your Son's name. Amen.